there's a lot of uh, embedded intelligence hiding in different industries that have never had a way to make it into neighboring or very far off industries. We're kind of on the, the crest of it where it's really hard to know what could come of it. I'm Justin Lokitz from Business Models, Inc. And on today's show, how Heather Carrick, a senior research engineer at Autodesk, is helping to define the landscape in which humans and robots collaborate to get more done than either could get done on their own. The big question is, what does the future hold for robots in the context of human workers, especially in the context of the next living lab? Okay, welcome everyone. Um, today on today's podcast, we have Heather Carrick. She's a senior research engineer uh, at the Applied Research Lab in the office of the CTO at Autodesk. Say hi. Hi, everybody. So today with Heather, we're going to talk a little bit about robots as partners. Um, a big part of what uh, what Heather does here at Autodesk is is working with robots potentially as uh, co-working collaborators with robots. Am I right there? Yeah, it's definitely an element of our research. Okay. And, and I think one of the questions I'm trying to answer here is how might robots and, and humans work together to get more done than either could get done on their own? Um, so with that, let's just sort of launch right into it. So on your profile on LinkedIn, it says you're currently focused on human-robot collaboration and the role of ubiquitous sensors can play in the, uh, in the role uh, of machines in our lives. It's a, it's a long, <laughs> it's a long sentence. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about what you're doing here at Autodesk. Yeah, so um, Autodesk in general makes software and tools for people that create kind of anything you can think of, both right. physical things and digital things. So movies, video games, buildings, pl planes, automobiles, ex toys, and uh, so we've historically always existed in the realm of imagining and designing those things and like getting an image of them on your computer with computer-aided design. Um, and we're trying to help people go from their design of the computer to making it real in the world. And for a lot of people, like that involves manufacturing or construction or the creation of something. And there's machinery involved in that. And um, we're pretty sure, and I think a lot of people agree, that in the future, robots will be a bigger and bigger part of the creation of things. I see. Um, and historically, robots, like robots have been around for a long time, like it's kind of 60s to 80s when they were first emerging. So they, they're not new, but they've always been, like a lot of other machines, just dumb actuators. Um, very powerful, very precise, but not inherently intelligent. And so robots have been helping people assemble cars and you know, build airplanes for ages, but they haven't They've been a thing that need to be needed to be overcome and uh, needed to be sort of wrangled, as opposed to something that you can work with. And mm. so we're trying to explore how to kind of unlock the potential of a robot, so that a person um, that is out of the automotive industry perhaps um, can actually access a robot and utilize them in a new way to get their design in the real world. Got it. So you know, I'm sitting here in the Applied Research Lab at Autodesk, and I'm looking out at this warehouse where there's a bunch of robotic arms. Are those the robots we're talking about? I think, you know, we were we were speaking a little bit before that maybe there are some misconceptions about what we think about as robots. Is it Robbie the robot? Is it R2-D2? Is it these robotic arms? Is it, you know, the, you know, uh, uh, chatbots? What is a robot? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and, you know, kind of the cheap answer is, yes, they're all robots, but I think it's really helpful to be clear about which domain you're talking about at any time. And it feels like we've 
our lab's been exploring robots for about three years now, and it feels like even in those three years, just the public discourse around robotics has expanded just drastically. Um, with our research, we've focused exclusively on the robot arms, like you mentioned, the kinds that would be in car factories. Um, because we, robots is such a broad field, we've decided just to, to focus on the robots that are used in, in industrial applications. But um, from a technical definition, um, robots tend to be dis uh, defined as uh, pretty much machines that can see, plan, and do. Hmm. Um, and so any, uh, and like C can be a very broad, like whether it has eyes or it has some sort of code input, but a way that some, some tr event happens that triggers uh, logic in a computer that then triggers actuation in the real world. Um, so that can be things like Robbie and, and R2-D2. There are a lot of um, like people's uh, Roombas is a robot. Um, we're not doing any research on Roombas. They're the, the ones that, uh, you know, lots of drones, flying drones, submersible drones underwater. Uh, they're, you know, the delivery bots that people use in hospitals to deliver prescription medicine. Those all count as robots. But now with artificial intelligence, the actuation has stopped necessarily being like physical motors and has started with being things like you mentioned, chatbots. Like you can type an answer, like type something, hit enter, and AI parses what you've said, comes up with the answer, right. and delivers it to you. And that is now, in sort of public discourse, people are referring to that as a robot. Like Alexa and Siri are d referred to as robots. Um, so I, f I think we're in a, a stage where there's a big explosion in population and you know the genealogical uh, kingdom phyla of the different robots is still kind of getting parsed out. Um, but we've, uh, we're definitely exploring machine intelligence really broadly. Uh, but when it comes to actuating that intelligence, we've we've just scoped our research to to the arms uh, of of all scales. We've got some pretty some pretty small ones that can are safer for humans to be around and can do uh, lift small loads and do um, mm. smaller tasks. And we've got our largest one can lift uh, 205 kilos. Wow. Uh, so we kind of run the full. The, so we have a pretty broad population still, but we've we've limited ourselves to these. So none of the the humanoids or the walking robots. Um, are sort of out of out of our sphere, but we definitely uh, pay attention to them as far as the the ecosystem that our robots, the robots that we're working on, would need to to work with. Um, but yeah, that's where where we are. Yeah, got it. I, you know, I, you're talking about a, a giant robot arm that can lift 205 kilos. That sounds pretty dangerous, also to be around <laughs> humans. So. You know, in that, what it what does that interaction look like when you're thinking about humans? And you know, again, you're talking about these industrial arms um, because you've scoped this very specifically not to be Roombas. What does it look like for a human to work alongside, or maybe with one of these robots? Maybe you can provide a couple examples. Yeah, it's definitely something that we've taken really seriously in our research. Um, is how how can you be innovative and creative with uh, humans and robots being together without being just having flagrant disregard for human safety. Because um, robots are, anyone can tell you who's worked with them, they're, they're incredibly dangerous. Um, we are, since we're in a lab setting as opposed to an industrial setting, we can, we can do things that would not be really allowed in a factory because we have a much more control over who's around, what everyone does, how trained everyone is. Um, but we definitely do um, pretty thorough risk assessments prior to to doing any of our projects, right. so that we can make sure that 
if a human is near a robot, we have a way to prevent that robot from getting dangerously close to the human. Um, so there's uh, ways that we can limit how far the robot can move. So that, like the robot left to its own devices has a really large reach, but we can limit that in software. Uh, we can also put these little laser curtains around the robot. So if a person or the robot break the laser beam, the robot gets shut down. Um, and there's something uh, delightfully called a dead man switch. Oh my. Um, which is a button that you hook up to the robot. And you uh, it, the button can be in three states, either not pressed at all, pressed halfway, or pressed all the way down. Um, for the dead man switch, it has to be pressed halfway to be operated. So the idea is if you get scared or injured, a human's reaction may be to squeeze or let go. So if either of those things happen, the robot stops. Um, so for a variety of just practical legal safety reasons, whenever we have a person that is within reach of the robot, they have to hold that button. And so we can have a person close to the robot, they do something, the robot, you know, like, like perhaps drawing or building something, we did a welding project where we might need to move something. So the person can place the object in the robot's reach step away and the robot moves in um, while all the while holding the button. So we have to, depending on the project, we have different uh, hoops to jump through. Um, but it's something that our uh, health and safety team has actually been really excited about is uh, helping push the envelope from a occupational safety standpoint. Um, like so we've, we've talked a lot with industrial experts about robotic safety. Because sometimes you'll see there's like this video on YouTube of someone on a chair strapped to a robot flying around. I'm not, like, I don't know, but I'm not confident that they had a thorough risk assessment for that project. Um, and it feels like you have to, like, I think in any of these like crazy innovation labs, you give it, you feel like you have this false choice between following like safety rules and doing fun, cool things. And we try really hard to, to prove that that's not a, a dichotomy that like there don't need to be an right. opposition that you right. can you can do cool things safely. Um, so yeah, we've worked a lot with artists doing doing some cool work. Mm. We've had um, uh, yeah various projects of uh, co-creation with robots. Um, we have a project now where you can use a VR headset to control the robot. Um, so we have a we call it the digital twin. There's wow. an exact replica of the physical robot in virtual reality, and that can also help from a safety standpoint. So when we did the welding project I mentioned. For a variety of reasons, you can't get very close to a welding robot. Um, and if you, if you are close to it, you can't see very well because you're wearing welding protection. Sure. So you don't fry your eyes and get sunburned. So we were coding this robot that was welding, but whenever there was some problem, it was really hard for us to troubleshoot it because we couldn't see the robot very well. So what we did is we took the CAD model of the robot, we rigged it up in Maya, we threw it in a VR environment, and we synced them together. So our virtual robot was a puppet of the real robot. And then we could set, hit go on our code, have the robot start welding, and we made a little digital weld bead. It was a little sphere that would drop every time, every you know couple of milliseconds to build up a digital weld. And then we'd put on the headset and we could get dangerously close to our virtual robot totally safely. And then we've expanded that project where now the communication goes both ways. You can take control of the robot, hold your headset, hold the, the trigger on the, the controller down and wave your arm around and now the robot will follow you wow. so um that's a way that we can have a person uh closer or farther from the robot and having like very fine motor control because one of the dangers for robots in general is the robots that we have and like 
pretty much all robots, are code instantiated. And if anyone's ever written code, code will do exactly what you told it to, even if it's not what you thought you told it to. To a fault. Yes. Sure. And so so um, a really common thing is to get uh, to get the directions of your axes reversed. And so if you think Z positive is one way, but it's actually the other way, you'll suddenly send the, send the robot in the opposite direction than you think you are. And that's, that can be where a lot of dangerous things happen or crashes happen, because you are, you expect the robot to move, you expect it to move in one way, and it ends up coming, like you're behind the robot and it flies at you. And so uh, by having the, the VR control, you can't make that mistake because the robot is actually tethered to your movement as opposed to this abstraction right. of a number in space. Right. Uh, so yeah, that's some of the some of the work that we're doing. Yeah, that's really really interesting. You know, so here's you, you mentioned welding. You know, I think um, you know probably everyone has seen Iron Man, and he's got these sort of robotic arms, and he's calling them, and they're whistling to him, and they're getting sad, and they're emotional, whatever. Um, you know, what are what other applications could someone actually sort of cooperate with when it comes to one of these arms? Welding is one, and maybe it's precision in welding. Um, you know, more than accuracy, right? There's precision, which is accuracy over time. Uh, what else, you know, what, what else could someone per, per, perhaps do or possibly do with a robotic arm that today on their own maybe is not as good or on, the, on their own the robot's not quite as good? Could they actually build something more than either one of those alone? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a question we ask ourselves when we, <clears throat> when we scope some of our projects. And as it stands, there, there are things that robots tend to be really good at. Um, depending on the size of the robot, they can carry vast weights. They can reach very far distances, um, more so than a human can safely repeatably do. Uh, they can go, they're very repeatable, so you can get a robot to go the exact same place every single time. Uh, they're very good at math. <laughs> they're com like the computers in them are very good at math. Uh, so you can have them hold very complicated geometries. You can yeah, have, have a very precise place and configuration something needs to go to and send it to the robot in a way that a human would not, you know, get a, get a ruler out and trying to get a human to point their finger at a certain place in space would be much harder. Sure. Um, so those are things that robots are really good at. Uh, but things they're not very good at natively is knowing where they are, knowing if what they're doing is working, like having a feedback loop of... Like the example I always use is from I Love Lucy, the old show with where um, Lucy and Ethel own the chocolate shop, and they get they there's chocolates on a conveyor belt, and they stop paying attention and the chocolates start building up and chaos sure. ensues. Sure. It's basically that. Like that happens in automation. It's not a very automation as it stands isn't very resilient. So as long as everything is perfect, everything's great. But robots do not have a way of knowing that something went wrong. Humans are great at seeing immediately that wait this something's not right. Uh, and so a lot of our projects try to find that sweet spot where the humans can be the sensors, the humans can be the, a creative element, uh, the humans can tell it when to start and when to stop, and, and sort of be the, the more adaptable brains behind the operation. And the robot can do these repeated precise things. Uh, so there's, a, there's an example that uh, we, we worked with a, a researcher who was doing this project where uh, the robot is kind of like our welding project, but inverted. So uh, people talk about having the robot be the fixture and the human can do the welding. The robot will hold the two pieces in place. Sure. Exactly. This very precise angle. And then, because if anyone's, anyone's ever done welding or even like woodwork, getting your two pieces sure. the right angle and keeping them steady and having them not split or move is a huge pain in the butt. 
if you can just get two robots to hold those parts where you need them, then you can go in with the drill. You don't need to worry about programming a robot to drill a hole or program a robot to squirt glue. You can do that part. And so, uh, so yeah, w there's lots of ways that you can have a robot, uh, as they stand today, do those things that they're good at. But we're also really interested in what happens when robots do become good at knowing where they are. And what happens when robot robots, can how can we make robots know when something's wrong? How can we have robots ask for help? How can we have people talk to robots more easily? Because as it stands, even if you wanted to, like it's really easy for me to explain to you how to drill a hole in a piece of wood. As just two humans, I can point to things. I can't like point to a computer and tell it, go to here. Sure. And so finding like that, there's that whole space of things that don't, programmatically that aren't programmatically explained very well that as it stands is really hard to get robots to do but that's where machine intelligence can come into play where ubiquitous sensors can come into play where we might come up with ways that we can convey that information in a way that a machine can understand um and there's still there's still a fair amount of work to be done in that realm so our projects kind of span both capitalizing on the current skill set of robots but then also toying around with what will happen when that skill set expands. Makes total sense. Uh, having built a bike frame before and having, having put it on a frame to braze all the joints, yeah, it would have been really nice to have a robot either do that for me or uh, work with me. Yeah, that, that's a good example. Uh, Saul at Other Labs actually came up with a robot bike frame system. Yeah, sure, it was crazy. Yeah, so you just take the person, you know your geometry, you can figure out the perfect bike frame for that person's body type. And then the robot would, they had a, a robotic system, like it wasn't an arm that would cut all the tubes correctly. And then a robot arm that would, that would jig each piece together and go in and weld oh, it. That's beautiful. And it's, yeah, because I've, I've not personally made a bike frame, but I've witnessed bike frame creation. And the, yeah, the fixturing of that is a nightmare. It's a, it's a nightmare. Everything has to be literally within millimeter accuracy or it's off and the braze cracks or... You know, or the geometry is just off enough, off enough that everything else is off. Getting that last piece to fit when it's a fully constrained system. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, a few years ago, you received your master's degree from Stanford in product design, and you were specifically focused in uh, human-centered design and design thinking. How has this helped you uh, with your, you know, working with robots and and you know, and these are so non-human. How has sort of human-centered design helped you with the robotic part? I think the important part is the fact that these, ideally, these robots won't be act, acting in a vacuum. Like there, there are humans are part of the story of what is it the robot's building and why? Who, who is working with the robot? What factory is it in? Who set the robot up? There's, there's a lot of sort of invisible humans, even in the current ecosystem around robots, um, that are like actually the customer of, of this problem. Like there are lots of humans that struggle with getting their robots set up in the first place and humans that struggle with finding which direction is up and down in their robots coordinate system. Like a lot of the, what makes robots hard to use and what makes robots dangerous and what makes robots confusing and expensive and slow is in, is a human problem, not necessarily a techno technological problem. Like these are incredible machines. Like the, the engineering behind them is incredible. They can do anything, but it's really hard to, kind of open up the user experience of them and the user interaction of them. And I think uh, like the, the part of exploring robotics that's interesting to me is the human element of it as opposed to, to sort of the mechatronics 
right. of it. So it goes back to what you mentioned before, which is you can program these, they will run that to a fault, but if you don't take humans into account and the design by which uh, you know that human needs to interface that or interface the things that that robot is also interfacing, then you're probably missing the point. Yes. Yeah, good one. Um, so in that, what are some of the most exciting prospects for human-robot collaboration in the future that you can think of? And you know, when I think about the future, you know, think about perhaps Horizon 3, five years, 10 years, even, uh, you know, I wouldn't go much further than that. <laughs> but in your mind, what are some of the most exciting prospects there? Um, well, I definitely think that uh, just the explosion of machine intelligence is really exciting for, for all sorts of industries, but especially, especially for robotics. Um, particularly trying to crack the a way to for industries to adopt uh, some of these more adaptive robotic theories in their industrial setting. Like in our lab, we can do dangerous things because we're in a lab, but we wouldn't be able to do them in factories. If we could come up, if machine intelligence can help get over that hump so that we can have a reasonable degree of confidence that the robot will not, like will stop when it needs to stop and that people won't get hurt that would then open open it up to industry where they can kind of have the field day of what happens cuz like I can't really tell you what what all a robot in a factory can do that's kind of up to the you know intelligence of the masses and I think that there's so many you know startups and factories and garages that given a robot that they can safely operate and better tools to turn the robot on they'll come up with more things than either of us could possibly conceive of and I think that's really exciting but I think we need like there are a few sort of regulatory legal hurdles that need to get up from a safety standpoint, and just kind of ethical, reasonable hurdles that need to get over, need to need to be uh, uh, triumphed over before we can really unlock the potential of robot, like give democratize robots and sure. give them to give them give access to them to people that can come up with these really cool solutions to all sorts of problems, um, and I think that. That yeah, that machine intelligence may be like a key part in in allowing uh, robots to be safely operated in other environments. And then another thing that's been really exciting is just being in this lab in Autodesk. We we talk to folks like our customers, various executives and such. And uh, even in the last couple of years, we're having very different conversations with people about the future of work and future of factories. Um, and it feels like. In the 90s and early aughts, there, the focus was so much on like Six Sigma and Lean and reducing variation and like, perfecting the precision of your automated system. But as I mentioned before, that's very rigid. There's not a lot of flexibility. There's not a lot of resilience sure. in those systems. And I think that's been a challenge for people too, is trying to retrofit a cool, flexible robot in your otherwise very, very, very rigid process. And people are instead thinking about their next factory. So instead of, like, there's plenty you can do to retrofit cool factories, but you may have a much more interesting time starting from square one. And instead of trying to get, you know, every single thing within, you know, plus or minus three sigmas of variation, come up with how can we handle more variation? Can we do mass customization? And a lot of those things will be very, very hard to retrofit into current factories. But people are asking the right questions about how they should rethink their design process and their build process for creating a factory that can absorb whatever like you said, like looking five years in the future, like you, you we can guess, but like it's future like I think it's I think it's useful to speculate, but sure. it's silly to predict. 
And so, so how can you future-proof your factory so that five years from now, when God knows what's happened, your factory can absorb the next thing in an adaptable way? And I'm really excited about the number of companies that are thinking in that way. And I think that's really critical. Yeah, I think that's really, really exciting because you, certainly what you see today, whether it's auto manufacturers or you know, or it's a, you know a manufacturer of, of consumer parts for iPhones or whatever it is, yeah, it takes them forever to actually design the next line. You know, to, to take on whatever that next thing is. You know, I know the and I know that these you know most big companies spend you know all of their time you know a majority of their time working with all these other companies to figure out, okay, how are we going to have the next iPhone or Android or whatever machined properly? And of course, then Foxconn or whoever's doing those has to set up a specific line to do that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I, this is really interesting that, yeah, if you set up your line to, to take on that flexibility and change, you know, uh, you know, at the drop of a hat or at the design of a new product or, or whatever, that's that's truly interesting when it comes to the future of, of work and working and, you know, creation. So what are your biggest fears? What could go wrong in all of this, uh, you know, that, you know, that, you know, really destroys something, you know? Yeah, that's a rough one. I... I'd say I I fall on the like techno optimist side, but human realist, where kind of the idea of like technology isn't necessarily inherently good or evil. Like it depends on what you do with it. And I think that um, there are a lot of really challenging ecosystems, I guess, that are being developed with, as machine intelligence gets better, there are really important questions we as humans need to ask each other about how do we train algorithms to not have biases? How can we, how can we be careful with what we entrust with machines? How can we be thoughtful about what happens to jobs that get automated out? Like, do we think that employers have a responsibility to their employees of today's jobs to prepare them for future jobs and to maybe have really, really generous severance packages, like ex exceedingly generous severance packages based on today's standards, if you know that people are gonna find themselves out of a job at the age of 55 in an industry that they cannot get another job in, like what are our human responsibilities to one another? Um, and I think history doesn't lead me with a lot of confidence in our ability to navigate these challenges efficiently and with a lot of empathy. <laughs> and right. so that's where kind of, you know, to the human-centered design, I think the part that makes me the most worried because it's the part that has, like, technology, like, I can code it this way or that way. Like, there's ways that you can kind of scope the tech, but once it's out in the world, there's it's really hard to control how 7 billion people consume that and how they organize themselves around it and how it gets governed and how it gets regulated or doesn't. And I think that that's where, just like looking back in history, the number of times where like public transit in America was deprioritized. Like we decided we were gonna be a car, a car country. And those are decisions that were made ages ago that we are living with the consequences of today, the way that our cities are laid out, the fact that public transit was ripped up in a lot of cities. And now we're like, we're just now trying to put it back into some places and trying to deal with the fact like in the Bay Area, people, people have commutes that are over an hour long because of the, 
Right. Because we we made a decision a long time ago and we're now living with the residual impact of it. And I think that a lot of decisions are being made today that will have 20, 100 year long shadows. And that's what worries me because it's hard, like no one can predict the future. It's hard to know what the right answer is, but it's easy to see some troubling writing on the wall. Like, you know, the financial side of, uh, there's some statistic I'm gonna get wrong, but like since the 80s, we've had, you know, like 80% of the increase in wealth has gone to 5% of the people or something. Just the the bounty and the spread as, uh, as the second machine age uh, guys call it, uh, is, disconcerting uh and i don't know like and that that's kind of falls outside of the realm of tech even though tech is a big part of what's feeding these problems um but i think it's a it's a series of human decisions and kind of whether we end up as a dystopia or a utopia won't be the tech's fault it will be what people do with it and i think we're still in a stage where we can make the decisions we need to make to lean towards the utopia side um but I think that there are decisions that can be made that would that would take us on various yeah. left turns. So that's kind of where my my concerns lie. Yeah, no, that's that that's pretty clear, right? So it's not that you're it's not that you're scared of the future. Certainly, you're not. You work in the supplied research lab, but you're you're, you're worried about some of the decisions that are that are going to be made that impact that future in in some way, and hopefully not negative ways. Yeah. Yeah, particularly like it's it's an interesting problem that's coming up with machine intelligence is that the people that write these algorithms often like part of what makes it work, like I said, it's really hard to program a robot to, you know, drill a hole in the wall where you can explain it by waving your hands. Like some of the things that we're, we're teaching robot uh, computers to understand are things that we can't describe programmatically. So we just throw pictures at them or throw throw data at them and they figure it out. And it's to the point now where science, researchers can't figure out how their right. machines came to the conclusions they did, like the, the AlphaGo, like no one knows how it came up with its moves. And so it's really hard to uh, police it. Uh, but so now researchers are trying to come up with a way to teach machines to show their work. <laughs> and so it's so like there are ways that we can, we can try to kind of find technical solutions as well, but, but it's especially challenging when a lot of this stuff, like I've done some research on machine learning, but it's, a lot of it's way over my head. People have entire, you know, PhDs on tiny, tiny subsets of this. And so trying to have, you know, 7 billion people make an intelligent decision about a really, really complicated thing uh, can be really challenging. And I think uh, finding ways for people like us to talk about technology in a way that people of any background can understand um, and to take that responsibility really seriously, I think is important too, um, to the ethical responsibility to explain it accurately and to explain it at all I think are both are things that will be really important to try to uh, guide people to make the most informed decision that they can about how we how we handle all this tech right yeah to totally agree so you know I think that was my last question any last thoughts from you about uh, the future the future of work uh, and how robotics are a part of that um I think it's a really exciting time. I think that uh, there are so many things that are converging right now between machine intelligence and uh, supercomputers. Like, just how much fa easier it is for normal people to get access to really incredible tools. And the number of those tools that have started to blend domains. 
So like virtual reality, is it for video games or is it for industrial applications? It's for both. And now you can end up having someone with a background in entertainment talking to a person with a background in manufacturing. And they have this shared domain that they're talking about. But I think that we'll be able to break down a lot of silos that have been really just, you know, not intentional, but there's a lot of uh, embedded intelligence hiding in different industries that have never had a way to make it into neighboring or, you know, very far off industries. And I think it's a really exciting time for machine intelligence, virtual and augmented reality simulations, uh, robotics, and all different kinds, you know, robotics of all shapes and sizes, uh, and computing and, you know, different ways to program. Like they're all, it feels like a, a lot of stuff is is converging right now. And it's really exciting to think of what what people can do. And I think we're at that, we're kind of on the, the, the crest of it where it's really hard to know uh, what could come of it. Uh, I feel like there will definitely be some rocky times, uh, but I think that there is so much potential for industries and inventions and uh, jobs and hobbies that we've never even conceived of today that will be commonplace in five or 10 years. And it's like very exciting to be right at the start of that and just to kind of like be along for the ride. So I think that there's there's a lot to be excited about uh, in addition to things we need to keep an eye on. Well, great. I'm, I'm certainly excited. I'm, I'm excited just to be here. So, uh, well, thank you very much for your time today. And, uh, you know, I think that was a really, really awesome conversation. Thanks. And, my pleasure. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah.